It is an enormous privilege to join you at Chalmers Evangelical Church on this Lord's Day. I was trying to recall when I first met Robin. I think it was at London Heathrow, the center of the flying universe. And uh, at that time, I think he was serving as a missionary to England. Um, and now he's been returned to his homeland, and it's a pleasure to rejoin him here. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. I am reading from the NIV, but if you're using the church Bible, you will find that text on page 975, 975. I shall read Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16 to the end of the chapter. This is what Holy Scripture says. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. I spent part of 1969, many moons ago, helping an older man plant a new church in the Ahuntsic area of Montreal. It's an all-French area, I was reared in French Canada, of about 126,000 people, and we knew of no evangelical in that area. This older man was a great mentor and encourager. I visited 
about 3,000 homes before we got our first Bible study going. Those were tough years in Quebec. Sometimes he taught by soliciting comments on what we would today call case studies. One day he told me about an extended conversation he had had with a Jehovah's Witness. As it turned out, uh, my friend, who was a wise old owl, he steered the conversation away from endless disputes on um, matters of how you understand the last times, or even on Christology. He, he went right for grace. He tried to explain how the gospel is bound up with the free grace of God. And the Jehovah's Witness listened in this discussion very carefully and then said, I don't think salvation is worth much if you don't have to work hard for it, if you don't have to struggle for it. I can't imagine it being so free that you don't do anything for it. You simply have to be wrong. And so my mentor friend said to me, so how would you respond to that, Don? Well, as it was, it made me think of another conversation I had had a couple of years earlier when I was reading chemistry at McGill. I was doing some evangelism, and the chap in the next room in the dormitory where I was living. He, he was a Jewish chap, a, a good friend, a self-proclaimed atheist. And as I explained the gospel to him, his response was, I don't want to go to heaven on the back of another man's blood. How do you answer such things? How do you think about them? Some of their responses is bound up with what Christians have long called the offense of the gospel. The gospel is an intrinsically offensive thing to many, many people who do not believe. We'll come to that right at the very end. But on the other hand, the gospel in the epistle of the Galatians is something that the apostle makes very clear. It's simply non-negotiable. So the epistle begins with these striking words as unyielding as you'll find anywhere in Scripture. 1.8 Even if we, that is we apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Let them be anathema. If you want to say it bluntly, let them be damned. That's what the apostle says. And then, far from backing down and saying, of course, there are some exceptions. In fact, he says it again. As we have already said, so now I say again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Unyielding language. And this gospel, as he makes clear in the following chapters, is bound up with the free grace of God. We are saved by grace alone, Received through faith alone. We simply do not earn it. And if we think we do, what we do in fact is cast mud on the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. 
we begin to despise the cross. That's the language of the end of Galatians 2 and the argument of Galatians 3 and 4. So we read strong verses like these, 3, 3. Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And then you come to our chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And yet, and yet, there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about the Christian life as a struggle. It emphasizes the need for obedience and conformity to Christ and death to self. How do these passages that underline freedom, freedom from law, relate to these passages that talk so strongly, so powerfully, with equal rhetorical strength about Discipline, for example, 1 Corinthians 9, the last paragraph. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's very strong language. Do you think of your Christian existence in those terms? Or James 2 goes so far as to say that faith without works is dead. How do we integrate such emphases with what Galatians says about grace? Now, already Galatians itself has warned us that gospel freedom is not to be confused with license. In the immediately preceding verses, Galatians 5, 13 to 15, we read, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And then our passage. What we come to in our passage is this. Paul integrates many of these topics and it will be easiest to follow the text in three steps. Number one, what gospel freedom does not mean? What gospel freedom does not mean? Verses 16 to 18. Number one, it does not mean there is no struggle. It means engaging in a struggle you can win. Let me repeat that. It does not mean there is no struggle. It means engaging in a struggle you can win. Verse 16. So I say, the apostle writes, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. 
Now, in this context, flesh does not refer to that which is draped over our bones. Sometimes flesh can mean that. Nor does it refer to the entire spirit of an age. Sometimes flesh can mean that. Here in this context, quite transparently, it refers to something like the old nature, what we are still apart from the triumphant work of the grace of God in the gospel in our lives. The fact of the matter is that even when we are converted, what is sometimes called the old man, is not entirely gone. It's not as if our sinful natures have been so effectively destroyed that we can sin no more. Now, the Bible does describe a state like that. It's the consummation. One day, resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And the prospect of such existence is what makes Christians say again and again, bring it on. Yes, even so come Lord Jesus. Holiness looks better and better when you're struggling with all of the residue of unholiness. But what this text says is that the Christian has received the Spirit. The flesh is not entirely gone. And the flesh doesn't like where the Spirit is taking us. And the Spirit doesn't like where the flesh is taking us. And we are necessarily involved in some kind of struggle. In fact, it is the gift of the Spirit that ensures the struggle. If you're not a Christian, then why on earth should you struggle to be holy? You might struggle to live up to a certain received social norm. Of course, you have some kind of conscience and you struggle in some measure with what your conscience tells you to do when you don't live up to your conscience. But it's not this deep-seated, deep-seated, deep-rooted wrestling that the Christian is involved with. Have you noticed, especially those who've been converted from a really immoral background, socially disapproved and rebellious, full of spite and hate. Have you noticed when such people are converted, after a few weeks, they often start asking questions like this. You know, before I became a Christian, I was happy in my sin. I mean, it was pretty miserable at some levels, and it tripped me up, and I was ashamed of myself, but... but but now I'm struggling all the time. You, you know, I, I feel guilty and, and dirty. I, I have more conscience problems now than I had six weeks ago when I got converted. What's going on? How come the Bible makes me feel dirty? I thought it was supposed to clean me up. That's a very common experience. In fact, it's almost a demonstration of conversion. Because, you see, what this indicates is that the person in question has received the Holy Spirit, so there is now a war on between the flesh and the Spirit. Oh, of course, there were still struggles and, and shame incidents and, and the, the voice of conscience speaking to the mind and so on. Yes, 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 yes. But now, by the grace of God and the gospel, we have received the Holy Spirit who is impelling us to Christ conformity. So you watch Christians, baby Christians, new Christians, without any sort of civilizing Christian traditional he traditionalist heritage, come along and begin to 
to read the Bible and, and walk in the Spirit. They're, they're brand new Christians. They still don't know that much about the Bible. They know about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, that he, he bore their sins in his own body on the tree, and they, they've trusted him, but they're finding within themselves such a transformation of heart that they, they scarcely know what's going on inside. Praise God. Because the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And that is not merely the experience of new Christians. You can be a Christian for 40 or 50 years. Not be all that far away from heavenly existence. And still discover it is true. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Whatever freedom means, gospel freedom means, it does not mean there is no struggle. It means engaging in a struggle you can win. It means keeping in step with the Spirit so that there is real power to be victorious and to be aligned increasingly with holiness. Number two, it does not mean you get to do whatever you want. It means wanting good things. Verse 17, the first part we've already read. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So whatever else freedom in the spirit means, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Moreover, the you who is not to do whatever you want in this context is the you that is all too often identifying with the flesh. Or the statement makes no sense at all. You, still sinner that you are, you are not to give in to the flesh because you've received the Spirit. You are not free now to do whatever you want. You've come under the lordship of King Jesus. What it means instead is wanting good things, the Spirit himself so transforming us that we want what one day we did not want. Holiness becomes attractive. Christ-likeness is beautiful. Number three, it does not mean freedom from all constraint, but a transfer from the constraint of law to the constraint of the Spirit. Let me repeat that. Gospel freedom does not mean freedom from all constraint, but a transfer from the constraint of law to the constraint of the Spirit. Verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, part of our problem is that when we hear words like freedom, even if we prefix that word with gospel, gospel freedom. We attach so much to freedom that we read in things that we shouldn't read in. We're thinking political freedom, social freedom, individual freedom, moral freedom. Freedom becomes a kind of absolutist mantra. And yet a moment's reflection shows us that there have to be some limits here somewhere. Does this mean you are free now to go and rob a bank? Well, nobody would think in such stupid terms. So there are limits on this freedom. Freedom to go and sleep with someone else's spouse? You can't be a serious reader of the Bible and believe that. 
What does this freedom then mean? What exactly is at issue? In other words, we begin to hope, without articulating it quite so bluntly, we begin to hope that this freedom might actually entail a kind of moral freedom. Hey, Jesus died for my sins. So if I sin, it just gives opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate more grace. Isn't that wonderful? We would never put it quite so crassly, but deep down, some of us who have greatly stressed grace begin to think, it doesn't matter too much if I sin because I can always go back to the cross and get some more forgiveness. Isn't that grand? And suddenly the cross of Christ is becoming a warrant for hidden sins. Oh, we never put it that bluntly, but am I the only one who has ever thought along such lines? In fact, Paul raises a, a theoretical opponent, opponent in his epistle to Romans where, where that is exactly the question that's raised. Let us therefore sin that grace may abound. Paul adds, whose damnation is just. No, no, this does not mean freedom from all constraint. That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense logically. It doesn't make sense contextually. What it means is a transfer from the constraint of law to the constraint of the spirit. The law says you must do this. You must not do that. But now there's a constraint that's more powerful, more transforming. The constraint of the spirit within us. The question is always not whether we will be slaves or free. The question rather is, to whom shall we be slaves? Because the very apostle who stresses freedom again and again and again, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from the law, freedom from shame, nevertheless, as one of his most powerful images of Christian discipleship, talks about being a slave to Jesus and sees no irony. Because to be a slave of Jesus is to be free from sin. To be a slave to the Spirit is to be free from the law. We sometimes sing about this in older songs, don't we? Make me a captive Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink through life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Or in the words of an old Puritan poet, The law says, do, and a commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Gospel freedom does not mean freedom from constraint. It means a transfer from the constraint of law to the constraint of the Spirit. So this is what gospel freedom does not mean. Second, 
what gospel freedom does not do. Verses 19 to 21. In brief, what gospel freedom does not do is what Paul calls the acts of the flesh. This is not an exhaustive list. For down in verse 21, when he comes to the end of the list, he adds the little phrase, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but merely a representative list. They can easily be grouped. First, sexual sins. He mentions sexual immorality, sometimes rendered fornication, a word that covers all kinds of sexual sin, including homosexuality, but also adultery and premarital sex. It's a large word. It means acting sexually outside what God demands and prescribes, fornication. Impurity, that covers much the same turf, but now also focuses on the mind, what you think about, Recalling Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount that the one who is lusting is committing adultery in his or her heart. And that includes, therefore, a lot of sinning on the Internet. I don't know you, but I venture to suggest there are some of you in this room who are addicted to Internet porn. It didn't take the digital world to invent porn, but it took the digital world to make it so readily available. And you are destroying your soul, you are destroying your family, you are destroying what you think of the opposite sex, and that's an act of the flesh. That's what the text says. You worshipped your way into this idolatry, and you must worship your way out with a change of God's. Debauchery. All of the other things with a kind of looseness that overflows. Then there are pagan practices, idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry, as you know, in Scripture is not reduced to idols of wood and stone. It is simply the elevating of anything, anything at all, of substance or of ideology or of relationship. It is the elevation of anything to the place of God so that God is de-godded while this becomes God for you. That's why covetousness is called by Paul idolatry because what you want the most, what you covet the most becomes God for you and you become enslaved, therefore, by what you want the most. What you want the most may itself be a good thing. But if you want it more than God, it's a bad thing. And of course, it's worse yet if what you want the most is intrinsically a bad thing. But it's an idol either way. If it degods God, and replaces God, then if that becomes God for you, it's idolatry. And you can check that out very easily. What do you fantasize about? Where are your daydreams? The promulgation of the gospel in Scotland? Or an illicit relationship? The promulgation of the gospel and the glory of Christ in Scotland and beyond? Or making a lot of money? The promulgation of the gospel or 
to be thought number one within your circles. It's very easy to figure out where the idols are. Very easy. Just ask, where's your fantasy? Where are your daydreams? What are you doing with your money? Where are the priorities in your use of time? It's very easy to identify your idols. Witchcraft! Now playing into the entire world of the magical and the idolatrous and the demonic, some of it perhaps with real demonic power behind it and some of it fraudulent, manipulative. But in every case, what you want in witchcraft is control. Why do people read horoscopes? Even when they say they don't really believe them. But, <laughs> you know, it would be nice to know what might happen today, wouldn't it? Why would it be nice? Because it gives you some measure of control, of, of, of confidence. Instead of, of trusting the God who is there, the God who is sovereign, the God who has all authority, you, you, you rest for yourself some measure of control. You go to a seance in order to have some measure of controlled relationship with a loved one from the past. It's, it's, it's all about control and thus it's about, once again, the de-godding of God. That's why idolatry and witchcraft are linked. Then number three, relational Regressions. All of the next items in the list have to do with broken relationships. Hatred. I don't want to kill him. I just want to transfer him to Timbuktu. Discord. Jealousy. Wanting something owned by others. Why should he have it and not me? Fits of rage, plastered over with a thin veneer of civility and self-restraint until you can't take it anymore and you burst out and say horrible things that you feel instantly ashamed of but can't control. Selfish ambition. Dissensions. Factions. what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring syndrome. Don't we really love to be in the inner ring? Even in a church, you know, isn't it nice to know something about what's going on next in Chalmers Church that other people don't know about yet? Isn't that fun? Because again, it makes us feel a little closer to the center or on the inside track or Instead of wondering how we can help to build others up, we, 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 we want the inner ring syndrome. And pretty soon there are factions. Who's, who's more inner than others? Envy, akin to jealousy, but deeper. It fastens not only on things the other person might have, but on the other person. And then fourth, sins of self-indulgence. Two are mentioned. Drunkenness. And orgies. Orgies does not mean only sexual orgies. It means carousing with every self-indulgence. I know some Christian young people, not here in Edinburgh, I don't live here long enough to find out, 
But I know some Christian young people who, who are pretty sober most of the time, but every once in a while they go off and have a sort of drunken weekend together. They're not doing anybody any harm, are they? Now what does Paul say? Listen up. This is important. I warn you, God declares, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. A continual practicing of the acts of the flesh keeps a person out of the kingdom. Period. Don't talk to me about grace. If the grace that you're talking about is a grace that leaves people practicing the acts of the flesh, that's a very weak grace, a pretty useless grace. It's a grace that actually sanctions sin. It's so far removed from what Paul is talking about. It's so far removed from the freedom of the gospel that it's almost laughable. The fact of the matter is the continual practicing of the acts of the flesh demonstrates the truth that a genuine Christian manifests the holiness of the Spirit of God and a false Christian, a spurious Christian, manifests the acts of the flesh. Which is why when these things erupt among us, and I know they do, I know they do even in Chalmers Church, when they erupt among us, our first recourse must again and again be to return to the cross and cry for forgiveness and ask for grace to struggle the flesh against the spirit, the flesh against the spirit. But if instead you settle down into a, a comfortable acceptance of, of lives that are characterized by the acts of the flesh, this is not freedom. This is slavery. Slavery to sin. last. What gospel freedom does not fail to produce? What gospel freedom does not fail to produce? Verses 22 to 26. I have chosen my words carefully. Does not fail to produce. I didn't say what it does. I said what it does not fail to produce because these graces, these virtues are cast by God himself as the fruit of the Spirit. That is, they are re the result of an organic living, the Spirit within us, producing not just discrete acts of goodness. Any pagan can produce some discrete acts of goodness. That's why Reformed theologians talk constantly about the glory of common grace, Common grace produces médecins sans frontières, doctors without borders. Common grace pr produces many acts of kindness. Common grace will, will get a motorcyclist to, to help an old lady across the street. There are many, many kinds of, of, of goodness, good deeds that are performed by all kinds of people, good, bad, indifferent, Christians, Muslims, atheists, secular people. But that's not what Paul is talking about. 
He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The point is, the human heart must be changed or human beings cannot be saved. To put it differently, the gospel effects more than justification. I'll come back to that in a moment. It effects more than justification. It effects more than our standing with God. It certainly effects our changed standing with God. God declares us to be just. But the gospel is stronger than that. It is the power of God unto salvation, unto wholeness. The human heart must be changed or human beings cannot be saved. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. This mirrors God. Those who know their Bibles immediately call to mind a, a plethora of texts. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Quran, the holy book of Muslims, often speaks of God as sovereign. It often speaks of God as all-merciful. It even speaks of God as compassionate. It just about never speaks of God as loving. One of the reasons is because, in the Muslim mind, God, in eternity past, was alone. How do you love if you're alone? You have to have other in order to love. Whereas the Bible insists that God is one, but God is not simplex. God is triune. So in eternity past, the Father loved the Son. And the Son loved the Father. That's worked out in John and 1 John. And that's why it's possible to conceive of God even in eternity past, before anything else was. For God, though one, to love, essentially, in His very being. Because in this one triune God, there is always other. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father in primordial eternity. And in the fullness of time, he sends his son precisely so that all may, son, may honor the son even as they honor the father. That's because of the father's love for him. And the son obeys not only in the incarnation but all the way to the cross and resurrection primarily because the son loves the father and does whatever he commands. And this love, this triune love, this intra-members of the Trinity love is the basic model for Christian love in John 17. 
As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Now you continue in my love. You are to love each other as we, Jesus says, love one another, the Father and the Son. It's spectacular. The very love that is at the heart of the triune one God is to be replicated as Christian love in the life of the church. For we are members of one body too. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the antithesis not only of sourness and misery, but also of legalism. Legalism produces an endless list of brownie points, good and bad, endless introspection, endless judging of others, endless projected guilt, but no freedom. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Oh, I know Christians are supposed to be serious. Joy is not necessarily antithetical to seriousness. But Christian seriousness is not to be confused with being dour. I don't want to grin. It might, be the devil, might give the devil a way in. No, no, there's a joy in the Lord so much so that Scripture can say that the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, legal restrictions, but a matter of love and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. Show me a church that is full of the joy of the Lord and I will show you a church that is not only strong but evangelistic. Show me a church that is introspective, full of rules, generally miserable and endlessly dour and I will show you a church without much freedom, without much evangelism and without much strength. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. In a world of strife and inequity and violence and hate and tribalism and war. So what is this peace? Some mere emotional escapism? Inner peace? A kind of Buddhist peace that allows the world to go to hell in a handbasket so long as I'm happy inside? No, no. Peace in Scripture has various facets, and here they're all subsumed under the one word because this is the Christian's heritage, the fruit of the Spirit. There is, first of all, peace between God and His people. God is at peace with us. Because his dear son has made peace with us by his own death on our behalf. That's the message of Galatians. That's what Romans 5 says as it works through the significance of the cross. We have peace with God. Then it's peace also amongst human beings. 
In Ephesians 2, for example, we read, Christ himself is our peace who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentile, one, one new humanity, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in principle, men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation Hasn't that been your experience? Those of you who have traveled here and there, you go to another part of the world and they sure eat funny food and their smells are different and their sense of humor is different and their corporate worship services are different and, and besides that, they don't have your history and they don't like your politics and all the rest and yet somehow you build an instantaneous link, a peace, a sense of communal sharing, a shared savior, shared forgiveness of sins, one new humanity. And ultimately, it refers to shalom, ultimate well-being with God in a new heaven and a new earth. And because of these three, then also emotional tranquility. Now the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will garrison your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Oh, I don't have time to work through all of them. Think about them. Work them through. Look them up in concordances. The fruit of the Spirit is forbearance. Kindness. I think that in all human relationships, kindness is vastly underestimated. I suspect in the best marriages that survive with increasing joy over decades... The greatest aphrodisiac is kindness. Goodness. Goodness. There's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Goodness. Resurrect that word. Faithfulness. Gentleness, which is a species of meekness. Self-control. And then at the end of the list, Paul writes, verse 23, against such things there is no law. That is, gospel freedom does not merely keep us from sin. It generates such a transformation of character that the law can't possibly say something against it. The gospel is not so weak that it just sort of tips you over into not doing any more of the prohibited things. But it so transforms you that the way you live is above what the law tightly prohibits and commands. That's why the Bible can talk about spurious conversions where there is no evidence of fruit. There is no evidence of fruit. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, 23, many shall come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and in your name done many wonderful things? And, and then I shall say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, the King James Version has, you, you doers of bad things, of sinful things. I never knew you. In other words, the presupposition is that Jesus' genuine disciples 
have a transformation of life. That's why Jesus can teach elsewhere, by their fruit you shall know them. So verses 24 and 25 pick up from verse 16, which opened the chapter. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, in principle, we've looked at all of the deeds of the flesh and we want to mortify them, to kill them. We've crucified them in principle. They're dead. Since we live by the Spirit, that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then almost as a kind of thermometer of our spiritual state, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Let me conclude. The gospel produces transformation in different ways. The most fundamental is we're declared just before God. Our status is changed. God declares us to be just. We are justified because one has borne our sin, taken our penalty. He has died on our behalf, the just for the unjust. But secondly, the gospel transforms us. The gospel does not merely change our status. If it merely changed our legal status before God, you could be justified before God and sin without any differentiation whatsoever in your conduct and the conduct of a person who's not saved. Historically, it's very interesting to observe that in different periods of the church's life, one doctrine has sometimes been stressed above another doctrine, partly because of what is being denied at the time. So at the time of the Reformation, five centuries ago, there was an enormous stress on justification by grace alone through faith alone. That's as it should be. It was not the only thing that was stressed, but it was very greatly stressed at that time. At the time of the so-called evangelical awakening, the period of Whitfield and Wesley and Wales of Howell Harris and so on, what was more stressed was new birth, regeneration. Now, this does not mean that Whitfield did not preach justification. Of course he did. Of course he did. But the experts who count these things tell us that Whitfield preached from John 3 3,000 times. Now, you must understand that this was the days before cell phones and the Internet. Today, I can preach here in Thomas, Chal in, in Thomas Chalmers. You don't call it Thomas Chalmers. It's just Chalmers Evangelical Church. And the chances are very good that somebody will email me late this afternoon saying, I heard you preach at Chalmers Church this morning. Why did you say such and such? That's the digital world we live in. Things get posted. But of course, in Whitfield's day, he preached in one village, got on his horse, rode seven miles down to the next village, and nobody had heard of him yet. So he could preach the same sermon. There was a lot more possibility of repetition, do you see? And so the experts say he preached on John 3, 3,000 times. But eventually somebody twigged and asked him, Mr. Whitfield, everywhere you go, you preach, you must be born again. You must be born again. You go here, you must be born again. You go there, you must be born again. You go to the next village, you must be born again. Always, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be. Why do you keep preaching again and again and again? You must be born again. Isn't there something else to preach besides you must be born again? Why, why always you must be born again? Whitfield drew his cloak around him and said, because, sir, 
you must be born again. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul says in different terms. Do, do, do you see? The gospel is so magnificently comprehensive that it changes our status before God. It provides regeneration. It transforms us. The Spirit is bestowed upon us, which sets up a lifelong struggle between the Spirit and the flesh, which is drawn to an end only by the final blessing produced by the gospel, namely the consummation, resurrection existence, all secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Come back to my JW at the beginning of this address. How would you answer him? That gospel must be cheap, which involves no struggle. To him, I would say, gospel living entails spectacular struggle. Read the end of 1 Corinthians 9. But it's not the struggle that saves you. It's not the struggle that earns you enough brownie points to get into heaven. Rather, it's the work of Christ that does that and guarantees the struggle. And the Lordship of Jesus demands that you be all in. That's what it means to bow to the Lordship of King Jesus. If you claim to be a Christian and really show by your life you are not all in, don't want to be all in, then sooner or later a question is put over your life whether you've been regenerated at all because the Spirit wars against the flesh and we are involved in that struggle. And the glories of holiness become ever more attractive to us as the Spirit illumines us from Scripture and teaches us wonderful things out of God's law and opens our eyes to see the glories of the Savior and the attractiveness of holiness and the struggle is there all in. But never, ever, not for a moment, never, ever think that your struggle is what qualifies you to get in. It's the fruit of being in. And to that Jewish friend of mine, my mate at university, who said, I don't want to go to heaven on the back of another man's blood, the thing you really must say there is, then you won't go to heaven. And if you become a Christian, you will fall on your face and with tears of joy thank God for another man's blood. I am sure that in a congregation this size there are some genuine Christians who've been playing around a little lightly with sin. The struggle you are feeling in your mind and conscience and heart is the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. God says, walk in step with the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And there are others of you here who are not yet Christians. Some of what I've been saying sounds very strange. Yet if the Spirit of God has been working in you, there is part of you that says, I would like to be holy in God's eyes. I would, I, I would like for God to say that I am just. I am ashamed of my sin. 
then I beg of you, where you sit right now, lift up your heart and mind and say to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let us pray. We bless you, Lord God, for so great a salvation that meets all our needs and prepares us for the life to come, makes us desire things we once despised, makes us fear and hate things we once cherished. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight and make us, we beg of you, just as holy as pardoned sinners can be this side of the confirmation, of the consummation. For Jesus' sake. Amen.